Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. So now you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, David. You've returned from Argentina. Your teeth are better. I'm bright-eyed and bushy-tailed? My bugs? What's up, Doc? (laughs) That's a good imitation. That wasn't a good imitation. But, um, yeah, I was off in Buenos Aires for a few weeks, and um, I thought I'd get all my dental work done. And unfortunately, well, let's put it this way. What you don't want to have happen, Gene, is get an implant and then have it go bad or have it be rejected by your jawbone. You don't want that to happen, especially when they put the second one in and that one also doesn't work and they have to pull that second one out. I mean, when they put in an implant, the whole idea is that it shouldn't come out at all. And when they put in the second one to replace the first one and they put it in extra tight and extra deep to make sure it will never, ever come out, having to actually remove it on purpose, well, let's just say that it was a whole new level of exquisite, torturous pain, and leave it at that. I always wonder whether dentists really enjoy watching their patients suffer. I don't think there are too many things you can have done to your body that are as painful as dentistry. It's right up there, and I've had a lifetime of, let's just say, less than optimum dental experiences. I've had some some okay experiences, but anybody who has bad teeth or who comes from a family where bad teeth is a, a hereditary element in the family, you know what I'm talking about. It's it's no fun. I, I hate it when I meet people who say to me, yeah, I, I've only had like one cavity my whole life. I got great teeth. It's like, shut up. I don't want to hear it because I've had terrible teeth, Gene, really bad. And at this point, a lot of my teeth are no longer even really my teeth anymore. They're they're other they're not someone else's teeth, but you know, I've got implants, I've got bridges, I've got crowns, I've got caps, I've got oh, uh, technology is a very interesting thing, and 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 certainly, I'd rather have a bunch of artificial teeth than have no teeth at all. But, uh, you know, our technology is, is not totally perfect in that realm or any realm for that matter. Well, you know what I worry about here is how come Mother Nature gave human beings such bad teeth? I mean, I know very few people with really good teeth. I have decent teeth. So I've had some work and I need some work. But yeah. I have most of my real teeth still there. You're lucky. You're yes. very lucky. But uh, nobody has perfect teeth that I know of. And as I said, what did Mother Nature do wrong? What did the ETs do wrong if they seeded us? Did they say, hey, let's see these earthlings, these stupid, foolish earthlings with bad teeth? Yes, babe. Let's do that. Joke. They were just messing with us. Maybe they had bad teeth, too, so they figured that we'd share the misery, as it were. <laughs> I don't know. People say that nature is perfect, and uh, look around, and you realize that nature is really beautiful wonderful, in some ways very efficient thing. In other ways, nature is always revising itself. So we are a species still in the process of evolution. Even though some people don't believe in evolution, pretty clearly we're not done cooking yet. We're we're still uh, a project in progress, in process. So maybe a thousand years from now or two thousand years from now, people will have perfect teeth. But then again, Gene, a lot of this is socioeconomic. If you can afford good teeth, that's great, but certainly in our country, one of the dividing lines between the haves and the have-nots are decent teeth and decent oral health and hygiene. You go down to the deep south, you go to the, the you know parts of the Midwest that are poor, and you see a lot of people with bad teeth because dental care is incredibly expensive. And that's the reason I went to Argentina, Gene. It, it was a, a, sixth, a fifth to a sixth of the cost of getting work done here. So by the time you even factor in the travel expenses, 
which are not insignificant, but by the time it, you, the, the sum is all tallied up, it's still a fraction of the cost of the U.S. Now, did all the pain make it worthwhile in terms of the cost of everything here? Was it really worth that, plus the plane trip, plus the hotel and all that stuff? Is Argentina a place you'd like to live in permanently? Me? Well, given that I speak fairly good Spanish, it's not. I don't know that I'd qualify my Spanish as fluent anymore because... I really haven't practiced it much in 30 years, even though down there I was getting pegged as either a Venezuelan or a Cuban. Apparently, the Venezuelan and Cuban accents are fairly close. So I have a relatively easy time of it, and then I can speak the language and, and, and blend in a little more easily. Would I live there permanently? I think like many, uh, many expatriates down there would tell you, if you have an income that consists of American dollars and you're living down there and you're paying pesos for things, you can have a very good lifestyle for not that much money. The cost of things across the board is generally much lower, the essentials of living, with the specific exception of things like technology. To go and buy a computer down there is not a cheap proposition. To buy software is pretty expensive. If you have to have tech support, you know, if you need a, a computer repaired, it's not real pleasant. It's, it's significantly more than it is here. But in terms of the sort of the more base level stuff, you know, food, energy, Argentina is a largely energy independent country. They don't have this huge reliance on foreign oil that we do. They, they have a good amount of oil, a decent amount of oil. In fact, I found out that one of the main things that drove the Falklands War with England over the, um, the Falkland Islands was because apparently there's a bunch of oil offshore that surrounds the Falkland Islands. Of course, we have oil offshore here, but we never go after it. You know, there's all these environmental considerations, which I understand, which I respect, but in the end, it's not oil that we should be using. We have to be finding alternative fuels. We're getting into politics here, but then every time you no, go into politics... We're not talking about politics. We're talking about what it would be like to, like to live in Argentina. Life is a political thing, Gene. And I know that we, we catch some grief from our listeners from time to time because we do veer off into political topics. Certainly, when we talk about certain aspects of, for example, UFOs, you know, when we had Rich Dolan on, invariably, yeah, we do turn to politics because if you're studying government secrecy, well, just the word government there implies that there are political mechanisms at work. People somehow think they can compartmentalize various aspects of their life. You know, they can compartmentalize religion, they can compartmentalize politics, sociology. But this is simply not realistic, Gene, especially in the current environment in which we find ourselves today. The United States is under tremendous political pressures internally. And by the way, this is another interesting contrast to Argentina, a country that also has had a variety of political problems. I mean, we're talking about a country that was under military dictatorship until a couple of decades ago. They, they've had a very hard time down there. They had a huge uh, currency crash in 2001 and 2002 that really damaged many people in the country. But it's amazing to, to walk around a city where there's been this kind of economic chaos and to see the number of stores and the amount of commerce going on, it's, it's really fascinating. It's not like people aren't buying things there. They, they certainly are. To get back to your question from before, though, would I live there? And the answer is, I would certainly, if it were up to me and, and money was not an, an obstacle, I would certainly spend at least 
a third of the year down there every year because there there are a lot of things about the country that are really fascinating. I find the people to be really quite something. Even though even in South America, Argentinians have a bit of a reputation of being egotistical and a little self-centered. And, you know, the reality is they're very good-looking people. They come mostly from, from European stock. And, uh, you know, they're proud of what they have. To go to Buenos Aires is quite an experience in South America when you're walking around that city. In many ways, uh, you, you often feel like you're in Europe. It doesn't feel like Caracas, for example, a place where I spent time growing up. Uh, they couldn't be two more different cities in so many ways. Um, it's, it's, really, it's really quite something. So I, I really have grown quite attached to Argentina. I have some very good friends down there, former students of mine, Photoshop groupies, as they were, which is kind of funny. But I've had a great time down there. I've been down there twice this year. Even with the, the pain issues and the dental stuff that happened this last trip, I had a great time, and I look forward to going back there. I'm definitely going back next year. So even if you don't need dental work, you're going to go back there. Why is it that it seems that we hear more about sightings in terms of the number of sightings, in terms of UFOs or paranormal encounters in South America? Some people say, well, those people just get drunk more often. Those are the critics, of course. We're not saying that ourselves. But why is it that we seem to have more of an open acceptance of such things down there? Well, the critics that have the audacity to say it's because they drink more, that A, that's not true, B... Um, certainly, no part of South America has the methamphetamine scourge we have in the United States. That's pretty much completely unknown down there. So, you know, let's immediately discount that. I think there are a few reasons, Gene. Uh, I think that overall religion, in many ways, and mystical belief is still much more prevalent in South America than it is in the United States. Even given the rise of the religious right and the fundamentalists here in this country, uh, if you go down to South America, the Catholic Church has, uh, I think, much more of a hold on the population than it does here. That That's part of it. I think the other part of it is that people simply seem more open to talking about it. They're generally more open-minded about these topics. And because of that, things of this nature don't get squelched quite as much in the press down there. And you know, we talk we talk about Argentina specifically because of my recent trips there. There has been a huge amount of uh, paranormal and UFO activity in Argentina just in the past couple of years. There's been a real upsurge in terms of cattle mutilations, UFO sightings, extreme UFO sightings. There was the one thing about this um and I don't, I can't tell you what the veracity of this is, but that uh, that strange video of that swing I don't know if you saw this, but someone someone posted up on our forums. And this is in a town outside of Buenos Aires. It's in a, it's in a smaller town where there's this playground and there's a swing, that uh, like a kid's swing set. But one of the three swings on the swing set is just like going back and forth autonomously. And there's some video footage of sort of people gathered around it watching this go on, where it doesn't look like there's any significant amount of wind. It doesn't look like anybody's rigged this. But uh, this thing's going on. And when I was down there this last August, the first time, my friends down there were telling me about this. They said, oh, have you heard about this? And uh, this actually didn't make any level of the American press until, I guess, within the last month or so. But it was pretty well known down there. The other thing that's, that's kind of very interesting uh, when we talk about certainly South America and UFO sightings is that there are a number of areas in South America that are hotspots for UFO activity and continue to be hotspots. 
uh, specifically uh, in Argentina, for example, there's a city called Cordoba, and it's, uh, if I'm not wrong, it's sort of uh, northwest of Buenos Aires, you know, uh, quite a distance. I mean, it would, it's uh, at least a few hundred miles away, a couple hundred miles away, something like that. And apparently, there is a huge amount of UFO activity in that region on a fairly consistent basis. Why is anyone's guess? People aren't sure. I know on the Paracast, we've talked a little bit about uh, the Canaima region of Venezuela, where the Angel Falls are. And uh, when we had Dr. Bruce McAbee on, we were talking with him about a photograph that's in his book, UFOs Are Real, one of the most, I think, genuine UFO photos I've ever seen, one of the most interesting UFO photos I've ever seen easily, was shot in that region. And it turns out there's a huge amount of UFO activity in that region, and there has been for, for quite a long time. So are there places like that in the States? Maybe, perhaps. Well, uh, I'll tell you what, after we do our break, I wanted to mention something about that. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. Hi, Gene Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Here's our special offer. Because we love Gene and Dave and the Paracast, we are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com, hit subscribe. When you come to the PayPal page, just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina del Rey, California, that's Rey spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO-6242. Leave me a message. I will call you back. Or if I'm in the office, I'll pick up and just say, Hi, I'm a friend of Jeans and Dave's. I listen to the Paracast. Here's my special offer, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five. And that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, Send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're 
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And a lot of you listeners, especially people who post on our Paracast forums, have said, why don't you to sit down and be interviewed by somebody and we thought you know what instead of being interviewed by somebody we'll just have a conversation and we'll let you listen in and see what happens now two things of course john keel wrote about such places in the united states largely called window areas that seem to attract all sorts of paranormal phenomena so if you go into these areas you'll see ufo sightings but then you look beneath the surface and you find out there are all sorts of paranormal encounters there not just just UFOs, but ghosts, poltergeist phenomena, etc. And so you do have these magnet areas. But there's another issue I wanted to raise, which is the so-called UFO flap may not necessarily be a UFO flap in the sense that it signifies an increase of activity. It's a publicity flap, which means that whatever is going on is being reported more often. So even though UFOs are constantly being seen, even though all these things are constantly going on, until somebody in the press grabs hold of it, seizes it, and writes about it, you don't hear too much about it. The other thing is about the openness in this country. I think a lot of people, even people who report UFO sightings, if you talk to them, they have other things happening to them that they don't want to talk about. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And this is something that you feel yourself. Certainly, there are things that have happened to you that you have not expressed on the show. And we'll get into one of those in a little bit later in the show. Yeah. But because maybe there are various reasons to be reluctant about it. One is to be disbelieved. You know, people will say, oh, that David Bietney is a loony bin. But, you know, I think people know now that. I'm a loony bit. Exactly, but so am I. So what difference does it make? But this is a problem that a lot of people have, not just people involved in the paranormal field, but people in general undergo experiences that they will not talk about. But if you get them drunk or if you develop a friendship, a trust, maybe, just maybe they'll reveal it to you. But in South America, for whatever reason, they're more open about such things. Maybe it doesn't happen more often there. It's just that people talk about it more often. I think people in general, and and I'm going to catch hell for saying this on the Paracast, Gene, I think people in general, and and there are exceptions to everything, of course, but people in general down there just seem more open to talking to each other. My experiences growing up there, uh, just these last two trips to South America, I I left Venezuela in 1979, and I had not returned to South America since then. I've been to Mexico in the interim, which uh, is a whole other story, but I really hadn't gone back to South America until this last summer. What what I found was that, you know, here in the States, uh, and again, these are generalizations, but people tend to eat dinner, and then they sit down in front of the TV afterwards and they watch television. You know, I, I've known families that bond over reality TV. That's a very, I think, sad statement. And Well, the know, other thing is people don't talk to each other. They might say a few words between the TV commercials if they're not speeding past them on their DVRs. But when they right. eat, they might eat in front of the TV set. It's very common just to have the TV set playing as they're eating dinner. That's exactly correct. And that's a very good point, by the way. Um, Families, basically, instead of talking about the day's events over the meal at the end of the day, this idea of eating uh, dinner and watching television, which is, you know, just so completely passive. Well, I think for the most part, down there, people are more prone to talk to each other. If you go into a coffee shop down there, you go into a restaurant, it's not unusual to start up a conversation with the people at the next table. 
people live in, I think, a little less fear than we do. And, and that's a very complicated topic, obviously. But people also eat dinner, and then, Gene, they get up and they go for a walk. People go and walk after they eat. And this is something I also noticed in Europe as well. The times that I've been been to Europe, you know, it's it's much less of a television centered culture. That's not to say that TV's not popular, but you know, here in the states, everybody's buying their big, you know, LCD or plasma TV. Uh, I was reading a thing in the in the New York Times that this Christmas, the forty and fifty inch screens are are starting to really gain in, in sales figures on the thirty inch screen. So you've got these huge, massive panels and screens and people vegetate in front of these things it's it's less the issue down there and i think a big part of it is simply cost these things are much more expensive down there it's much uh, much rarer to find the kid that's got you know a whole room full of video games because they they just cost more money and, and overall people make less money down there so socialization is still a very important part of the society well you that's see what's... that's an important point too is you even if you have the 50 inch tv and the 50-inch TVs now are getting below $1,000 in the United States. That should not preclude families talking over dinner, finding a time to turn off the TV set and say, hey, let's talk. Try something new, guys. Let's Absolutely. talk about what's going on in the world, what's going on with our family, about various issues. Now, I should tell you, and maybe we're rarities here, my wife is an inveterate newspaper reader. She reads at least two papers a day. I don't say cover to cover, but she reads the New York Times and the local paper here, the Arizona Republic. And she watches news, and she always has information. She's a wealth of information. She'll come in here, and possibly the benefit of having a home office. And I never have a radio on, or occasionally I do. I don't have the TV on in here. So I am working in front of my computer doing whatever I'm doing, audio editing or writing something. She comes in and said, let's check this site. This has an important story we should look at. And so we spend a few minutes talking about it. How many families talk about anything anymore? It's a real issue. One of the things that I uh, really appreciate about spending time with my girlfriend and her three kids is that when we have meals, we have them in the kitchen and we talk with each other. And in fact, we always uh, end up having really good laughs over dinner. She doesn't really let her kids eat in front of the TV set in the living room. So uh, we do exactly that. And, and I'm spending more and more time there. And, um, you know, we, we talk quite a bit during meals. And I think that's incredibly healthy and really beneficial. And I'm not a parent, so I may be less qualified to make those statements. But certainly, um, I think that in the case of her kids, I mean, like I think about her daughter, Lauren, will very easily have a conversation at a very adult level. It's really kind of impressive to hear her talk. And, you know, this is something that I think more kids should should move towards. You know, we, look, we live in a, in a very strange, fragmented society these days, Gene. And, and you and I have talked a lot about this off air. It's a constant topic of conversation in my life with friends of mine. We do live in a very fragmented society. We live in an increasingly polarized society. I'm not happy about that. I think that's not a good thing. I think it ultimately it's a very unfortunate thing. And and there's this infamous speech or scene in the movie network where um where Howard Beale, 
Peter Finch is addressing his TV audience and telling them, you know, you people don't read books anymore. You try to be what the TV is. You dress like the TV. You eat like the TV. You know, you, you, you're thinking that we're reality and you're the illusion. And that's the exact way, it's the exact opposite. I mean, the idea of reality television, which unfortunately now given the writer's strike in Hollywood, I'm sure we're going to see this explosion of incredibly vapid, terribly empty reality TV. As opposed to incredibly vapid <laughs> scripts <laughs> on TV shows. You know, it's interesting here. My son, Grayson, who, ladies and gentlemen, is just shy of 22. He's a college student. He went to Spain, Alicante, Spain, and he became acquainted with this culture of just being able to meet so many people and he sends pictures that he puts on his Facebook account unless I share and we see dozens and dozens of pictures of people he's become friends with over there from all nationalities because there are a lot of students a lot of tourists so there's people from Britain from Ireland Japan wherever he has made friends from all over the world and he's living in a place where people can just talk to each other. What and an incredibly he, wonderful thing, right? And he loves it so much he wants to spend another year in Spain after he gets his paper and maybe do some work there before he starts his journalistic career. Mm-hmm. That's a really great thing. And look, at this point, there was a <laughs> there was a little flame war on the Paracast forums recently, and you know, part of it was my fault. I probably said something to somebody. Probably, most probably, I wrote to someone, or I wrote, a, I put a post on there in a bit of a, a haze of pain that this was going on while I was in the pain period down in Buenos Aires where I had the second implant that didn't take and for about a week I was in some pretty severe pain and uh, I wrote something to someone and uh, got into a bit of a flame flame war and a couple of the things that happened I mean this person showed their true colors and, and it wasn't a pretty thing but one of the things that happened was that I, I stated that I feel that I am a global citizen that I, I don't feel these strong urges for the strong nationalist sense that, you know, in our country is uh, usually put under the banner of patriotism. I have issues with patriotism. I think that in some ways uh, one could say, well, this is, a, this is a good, you should love your country. I have a bit of a different feeling about this. I think that loving a country at any cost, and regardless of what the country does, is sort of like the equivalent of a child loving their parent, where, you know, the parent, no matter how cruel the parent might be to the child, the child still has this core love for the parent that, unless the parent does something really heinous, is never really affected. Whereas, I like to think of love being an adult thing, where love is a two-way thing. It's a situation where there's a give and take, there's a balance, and, uh, and, and you know, it, it clearly differentiates an adult level or style of love versus a parent-child love. And this idea that one should love one's country, no matter what the country does, and support it no matter what it does, I, I'm in complete disagreement with. And this person specifically said to me that, or wrote online, oh, gee, yeah, you're declaring yourself above nationalism. Uh, you know, you're breaking away from tribalism. Gee, isn't that good for you? And I thought... Yeah, that is good for me. That That is where I think we need to move as a species. This planet is a self-contained entity. You know, when, when we do something bad, and this is something that came up in my discussions with the Argentinians down there, which, you know, talking about the increasingly weak dollar, 
and and this is not a political topic. This is a this is a real economic topic. You know, the dollar is losing so much of its value. And by the way, Argentina is one of the few places you can go where the dollar is still worth something decent, and you can get good value for the dollar. But the Argentinians that I spoke with down there, just like speaking to cab drivers, they said, well, you know, if your dollar tanks, it's going to have a huge effect on us down here. And, and this is absolutely true. We we live in a time when I feel personally that this idea of the nation state is is antiquated, and I don't think it it serves our purposes anymore. I think that we have to step back and look at the fact that this planet is incredibly interconnected, and that we are really dealing with survival of the species. That this is no longer about well, gee, um, if the United States can be the most powerful country in the world, then Everything will be fine no matter what happens to other countries. Well, not the way economies are linked now and not the way the currencies are linked now. This is no longer a situation where we have, I think, we have the luxury of nationalism. I think we need to think in more global terms because the challenges we're facing are of a global nature. That's just the way it is. Of course, the problem with that is, of course, every country wants to be the head of this global society. So, mm-hmm. of course, we have in Europe, we have the European Union, which is maybe a first step towards an amalgamation of all the countries in Europe. Not that it would eliminate nationalistic tendencies, but at least you have a unified currency and everything else, which also has gained quite a bit of ascendancy compared to the dollar. My son observed that where each day it seems that his dollar is by fewer euros. But here they're talking now, and this is the conservative conspiracy theory, okay? Mm -hmm. The neoconservatives in the United States have this conspiracy theory that even Bush the so-called neocon, is planning some kind of plot with Mexico and Canada to form a North American Union, some kind of amalgamation. It doesn't mean that the countries would cease to exist, but they'd have some kind of way of associating with each other in a freer fashion, economically, etc., etc. The Moon. A Soviet spacecraft found after half a century holds the darkest secret of the moon race and the hope of all humanity. Red, red, red. Paul Levinson, the award-winning author of The Silk Code, writes, The novel Red Moon is a masterpiece, an adventure that you'll never forget. Red, red, red. By David S. Michaels and Daniel Brenton. Available now at Amazon.com. Find out more at Luna15.com. That's L-U-N-A-1-5. Today, whether you're in business or simply want to share something with friends or family, email and voicemail sometimes just aren't enough. That's why you should try GoToMeeting, a web conferencing solution that will revolutionize how you communicate with your business associates, family, and friends. The ability to host online meetings is an absolute must for today's business. With GoToMeeting.com, it's just like you're all in the same room. Unlimited meetings for one flat rate means you can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. Try it yourself, free for 30 days. Just visit gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. Try GoToMeeting free today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. 
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking. We're having a conversation. We're sharing information about the things that are going on. And maybe now it's the time to kind of move everything into our paranormal universe. Because very recently, before you went to Argentina, you gave a speech before an organization in New Jersey. Yeah. Where I lived for a number of years, long, long ago. And you revealed something that you haven't yet mentioned on the show. Can you give us kind of the background of how this particular event began and how you got involved with it? Sure. This was, uh, well, I, I can't give you a lot of detail about the history of the event, but um, I had met this guy at the um, X conference in Gaithersburg, Pat Marcatilio, who I guess goes under the banner of Dr. UFO. Really nice guy, a bit of a character, actually not a bit of a character, uh, quite a character, <laughs> truth be told. But I liked him a lot, and we were talking, and he had this little event that goes on, this UFO ET Congress. It's kind of a, a, a funny thing. Uh, he apparently has been putting this on for a number of years now. And from what someone there told me when I went down there, uh, this is kind of like a thing where the same people show up every year. It's his little gathering of friends and people who are interested in specifically UFO-related topics down in, uh, in south-central New Jersey. So my girlfriend and I went down there because uh, Pat said, oh, you know, why don't you come down here and, and do a little presentation, talk about, you know, whatever you want to talk about. And um, it was the very first time I had spoken at anything UFO-related or even paranormal-related. So, uh, you know, I was uh, breaking my cherry, so to speak, on, uh, on this event. So I went down there, and I had actually put together a little keynote presentation Damn, do I love Apple's keynote software. That's a whole other topic we'll save for the, uh, the Tech Night Owl. I have a lot of thoughts about keynote. We can do that possibly on next week's episode of the Tech Night Owl Live because you're due for a return appearance of the David Bietney Zone. Anyway. So I went down there, and um, there were some funny things that happened. I actually, I actually haven't even told you about Tom Carey of Carey and Schmidt uh, was there, and I ended up um, challenging him. Uh, right during his speech. Oh, his, I want to hear this, ladies oh, and gentlemen. It's a story. Because I, I started slamming into him, and he's like, I recognize your voice. Have we spoken before? I said, maybe. You know, who are you? I said, I'm just some guy in the audience. And I was going on and on, and uh, my girlfriend and I were both hitting him with some questions. At one point, he said, your first name wouldn't be David, would it? <laughs> it was just really funny because you know, he actually started saying, you know, me and Tom and, and, and Don Schmidt are the only real full-time what did he, how did he put it he said we're the only what was it non-passive researchers something like that they were the only like. real researchers of roswell and everybody else is an armchair researcher that kind right, of thing right exactly you know ball phaser and uh and freeman and all these other people who have devoted a lot of time and effort you know they don't really exist but anyway that's a whole nother a whole nother story of course stan but, and dennis and all those people and of course kevin randall might have something else to say about that but okay yeah they weren't there to represent themselves so i was there to defend them and i did but that's a whole separate story it, it was a really fun event but anyway i got up in front of the this little little small group of people and given that it was jersey i thought it proper to reveal an episode but now i'll do even something further because i told you i was going to talk about this thing I revealed uh, down there. But I'll go even one step further. When I was driving down with my girlfriend, you know, we drove on the New Jersey Turnpike, and uh, we were uh, right in the middle of Cancer Alley, which is uh, just a little south of Newark. It's where all of these uh, petroleum processing plants are, right? I mean, 
the turnpike right, runs right in the middle of it. And you can smell it, ladies and gentlemen. You know you're in Cancer Alley because, and I've been there, I don't know what that has no. done to my body or what it has done to David's body or Susan or my wife, Barbara. I don't know. But I'll tell you something. You know you're there and you want to get out of that particular area as quickly as you can. It, it kind of reminds you of that opening scene from Blade Runner where they're showing you L.A. in 2013, and you just see, like, these cracking towers with a flame on top. And You know what? We're not too far away from that, are we? No, we're not. Certainly, that part of Jersey is, uh, I can't imagine owning a home near there, because that's just got to be a nightmare. It's just, it just has to be just, just a terrible thing. But we were driving through there, and I said, you know, it's funny, Susan, we're, we're driving to this little UFO event, and here we are right now on the turnpike where I had my very first UFO experience. And she's like, what? I said, yeah, we were right about here. We were driving back from Brooklyn. So we lived in Somerset, New Jersey, and we used to go visit my grandparents on my mother's side and on my father's side. Both sets of parents lived in Brooklyn. So it seemed like every other weekend we would go to Brooklyn to spend time with both sets of grandparents. This was like a regular thing and a consistent part of my childhood. So we were driving back, and it must have been a Sunday evening because that was always how it worked out. We would uh, drive to uh, to Brooklyn on Friday night, and we drive back Sunday, late afternoon, early evening. And I want to tell you, this would have been 1969, maybe 1970. So that's like about eight years old. And my brother and I were sitting in the back seat, probably fighting as usual. And my parents were in the front seat, and we're driving along. My brother and I, at one point, we noticed, you know, we're, we're sitting in the back seat of the car, and we noticed out the back window, up in the sky, there was this object. And it was uh, a circular object with these square orange panels doming around the sides of the side of it. And it was, uh, we, we saw it for a couple minutes, and we started, you know, we're telling my parents, hey, Mom, hey, Dad, look, and my, my mother kind of leaned out the window and looked, and we couldn't really pull over because we're driving on the turnpike. And being a Sunday evening, there was probably pretty decent traffic you know it wasn't a situation where the the roads were empty or anything so we watched this thing for like a couple of minutes and then it uh, i don't remember if it flew away or if we simply got too far away from it Um, but that was actually my very first ufo sighting and it wasn't really that dramatic it was uh, who knows what it was i can't tell you but I, i remember fairly clearly that again it was this sort of this this round I don't want to say disc-shaped. It was more as a piece of a cylinder cut off because it wasn't really flat and it wasn't it didn't it wasn't a, a, a convex. It was more of a situation where it was uh, again take like a piece of a tube and chop it off so that the height of the tube is much uh, uh, smaller than the diameter and uh, and it had these I remember specifically these square orange panels going all around it on what would have been the edge wasn't spinning or anything, but it was moving. And it wasn't moving tremendously fast. It was it was um, medium height up. I mean, it wasn't very low. It wasn't real, real high, though. And I think what's relevant about this is that it would have definitely have placed this uh, pretty close to the flight path of planes coming into Newark. So uh, that's kind of an interesting thing in, in retrospect. So Susan and I are driving down to Bordentown, Jersey, where this event was, and uh, I said to her, oh, gee, this is kind of weird. This is where I first saw my first UFO. And um, it, again, not a major experience, but the experience I talked about when we got down there was a, a real major experience that happened in 1973, the year before we left New Jersey. And this is an extreme UFO experience. Now, here's the thing about me telling this. I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy to share this with the audience, but this uh, the same person I had the flame war with 
online on our forums, at one point decided to accuse me. Well, I'm sorry. He claims that he wasn't accusing me of being psychotic. He said that the nature of what I've described in terms of the Caracas episode with the cigar-shaped ship and the apparition that I saw at my friend Bill in Florida, that these were psychotic episodes and that I must have been hallucinating. I mean, which is really interesting, of course, given that that means that my friend Bill was having a hallucination along with me that was exactly the same as mine, or that my brother Barry and my family and however many other hundreds, if not thousands of people who saw the ship in, in Caracas, you know, we were all having one big consensual hallucination, of course. Really fascinating. And, and you know, we could state right now that if indeed we were all having a hallucination, that in and of itself would be a fascinating thing to study. How many times in history do we have a situation where thousands of people are having the exact same hallucination at the exact same time and are seeing something that is highly paranormal in nature. You know, sure, it happens every day, whatever. So I just want to qualify it by saying that I'm going to talk about this, but, but I have to be honest with you, Gina. I've been a little hesitant to continue sharing my experiences on, on the show because two things. I realize I'm putting these things out into the public realm. And um, you and I both use our names in regards to show. We're not doing this under pen names or pseudonyms. I mean, this is my real name. I'm David Biedney. And when I talk about things on this show, I'm going on public record. You know, when you put something on the Internet, it's, it's there for good. And there's this old saying, you know, don't put something in an email and send it to someone if you ever care about privacy. Because essentially, figure that every email that you send out potentially could be public one day. And, you know, that's an old rule of thumb, right? So, you know, there are some issues with, with, with talking about this stuff. But And I've said this on the show before, but I feel it's important at this stage in my life to talk about this stuff. I've been, I've been holding it in all of my life, and I sort of squelching it. And I'm at a point where, you know, what primarily motivated me to become involved with you in doing the Paracast was to have a venue in which to talk about these things in a framework that didn't paint them as crazy or extreme or weird. Now, you know, they are weird things, certainly, and I would even qualify them as being extreme. I don't, I don't think they're crazy. And the relevant point here is that I don't pretend to offer explanations for the things I've been through. I don't have explanations. I'm seeking maybe not definitive explanations, but some level of understanding of this stuff. In this sense, I think the discussions I've had with Jeff Ritzman on the show and that we've talked with him about, you know, these topics and then certainly the discussions I've had with him privately and in person, have been very therapeutic for me. It's been good to speak about this stuff with other people who are, A, interested in the topic, and B, other people who feel that they share some of these experiences. And, and that's the whole reason for doing the Paracast, Gene. You know, I, I remember when you first talked to me about this, my first reaction was probably not completely positive, was it? It was a little skeptical at the time. You know, should we really want to go out on the limb and talk about something like this? And I looked at it myself in kind of the same way. You know, we are both known as technology people. David has a reputation, quite a good reputation as an image editing expert. I have written a number of books on technology that some of you people actually have read, which may surprise me. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? 
Well, since 1948, fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're having a conversation, and we invite you to share it with us by listening to us and also by making your comments known on the Paracast discussion forums. In some ways, this is almost a response to what some listeners requested, which is saying that maybe you and I should be the guests, but we thought it would be better just sit and talk and see what happens. So anyway, I can understand the reluctance because if you are recognized in a technological field and suddenly you're dealing with paranormal, which people consider ephemeral, not real, right. could that hurt your reputation? Well, for me, it hasn't. Or maybe I, it has, but I don't know about it yet. But I gather in your case, because you've reported experiences you've had that are very unusual, well, right. that's a different story. Right. I mean, you've talked about a couple of things that are that are mildly paranormal, but you've been you've been pretty safe about it. And people who listen to the show know that we have our very distinctively different personalities. And uh, you're sort of the what someone call you sort of the calm collector when you rein me in. And uh, you know, you're sort of a level-headed one, and and I'm the somebody called me what was it the Hebrew madman or something like that you know that I get out there and I go crazy and I do the wacky voices that most people can't stand and you're, you're the straight man and I'm the bad guy is that how it works something like that I didn't sure get the memo is that the deal I don't know I think it was going to be the reverse that you were going to be the skeptic and I was going to be the believer and as we progressed I think our personalities merged and separated and it turned out that you had things happening to you that I didn't know about and understand yeah. when we started the show I had had no idea that David had ever seen a UFO, ever right. had any interesting encounters, none of that, never had a prayer as to what had happened to him, except that he read a lot about the subject. Now, hmm. Well, that's the thing. I think people need to realize that when we first talked about this, I didn't reveal any of this stuff to you. I think people must think that behind the scenes that we planned a lot of this and that uh, we had some agreement that, okay, uh, You'll reveal your experiences, David, as time goes by. And you know, if the show picks up steam, then maybe you'll reveal more of them. If the show doesn't work, then hey, well, you know, nothing ventured, nothing, nothing gained. But I, I've, I've chosen to re reveal things based on my comfort level, which goes up and down. Sometimes I feel more open to talking about these things, sometimes a little less open. And it's difficult because, in general, the listeners have been very supportive. And I want to thank everybody who um, who is that way. You know, this person who I got into the flame war with said, well, your forums have the reputation of being a place where people disagree with you. They get banned. And and I really thought that was unfair. Uh, we, we have certainly banned some people, but we ban people who get extremely abusive or who are, you know, certainly any of the people who are representing a, <laughs> a religious cult based in Switzerland with a one-armed carrot farmer. 
you know, we'll, uh, yeah, we ban them when they've come on and they've been extremely disruptive. People seem to have an issue with that. Well, guess what? The Paracast is is a program that we've made for ourselves. And this is something I said on the on the forums. It's an act, an act of indulgence on our part. People, it's interesting how people feel they have some level of ownership of our show, and that uh, you know that we are providing a service that sometimes they feel they can control as if it was a, a utility they're paying for, which is is fascinating to me. I never thought we'd reach this level. Of interest to people, I've been I've been fascinated that that's been the case. Meanwhile, Gene, I mean, I think it's fair to say that we answer to each other. I mean, we don't, and even sometimes that's questionable. But you know, we don't. We're not doing this show based on what someone's telling us to do. We're not doing this because we're looking for some, you know, major shot at primetime radio. It would be great if we had it. That's that's certainly true. And we couldn't do any worse than. You're listening to Toaster with Jock. You know, well, those guys, that show's terrible. You know, since Art Bell, I don't know if he's returned again for his 10th time, but I would listen to Art Bell. And since Art Bell decided that he'd rather spend time with his 14-year-old wife than to be (laughs) on that show. Well, look, Loretta Lynn, the famous country western artist, she got married at 13. She had her first kid at 14. So, you know, and everybody loves her. So look how those things are. So anyway, regardless of the truth here... Art Bell disappeared from the show. George Norrie kind of bores me stiff. And I'm not the only one. You know, my wife listens to a lot of things. She's very tolerant of my craziness. And I'm tolerant of her craziness, which is less than my craziness. And she has said she can't listen to him more than a few minutes before it just shuts down. You know, her attention shuts down because she can't listen to that kind of thing. He just seems to drone on. So, you know, so maybe we're here to save paranormal radio, but that wasn't the reason we got into this thing. Certainly not. Certainly not. And, you know, for those listeners who are going, well, they're trashing other shows. Well, we get compared to Coast to Coast a lot, not only on our forums, but other places on the web. And uh, we definitely seem to have gained a listener base that thinks that, yeah, we, we are... If nothing else, perhaps speaking about this stuff in a in a more informed fashion. Certainly, I think a more objective fashion, and I'd like to think a more intelligent fashion. I'd like to think that. But at the same time, you know, we bring our opinions to this. Uh, there are some other shows that claim to be agnostic when it comes to the belief systems about this stuff, or that they're they're objective. I don't think I'd ever claim that the Paracast is some objective show. There are two highly subjective people who are the co-hosts of it, and we both have strong opinions about things. I don't. Well, the other thing is too that sometimes when you claim to be agnostic about the paranormal, you're pandering to the lowest Mm -hmm. common denominator. You're saying, well, if the crazies get me higher ratings, I'll have more crazies on. It's like you look at your poll, your poll being your ratings, and you say, hey, you know what? I don't care what we do with this show. So we'll put more crazies on. People want to hear more psychics? Fine. You know, we'll even give out their 900 numbers so you can get them directly for $2 a minute. If that's what you want, we'll give it to you. That's not what we're in here for, okay? And I suspect also, not just in paranormal radio, but in general talk radio, mainstream talk radio, if there is such a thing, I suspect a lot of the people who are involved, people whose names you know, take a particular point of view because that's what gets them their dollars. Not because they believe they are conservative or liberal or whatever. It's because somebody is writing that check. Oh, you want me to be a liberal tomorrow? Sure. 
sure, whatever, you know, whatever. I'll, I'm a chameleon. I'll be whatever you want me to be as long as you give me the, the bling. We're not playing that game here. Gotta have it's the not, bling. Gotta have the bling. Yeah, well, you know, it'd be nice if there was some bling, but I'd be doing the show anyway, if, even if that wasn't the case. And that's certainly not the case, and we're doing the show anyway. So it's about, it's to talk about these topics. And, and for me, Gene, it's to talk about experiences. So let's come full circle now, and let me talk about this thing that happened in 1973. Um, it is one of the, the stranger UFO episodes I've ever lived through. As I said, I put together this little presentation and keynote. I went onto uh, Google Earth and pulled down some maps of Somerset, New Jersey. For those of you who are familiar with Jersey, or God knows we have some people who live in Jersey listen to the show, this all started in Somerset, where I grew up. Very nice little town, uh, right next to Rutgers University, uh, which is in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And uh, that town has changed quite a bit, but that's a whole other topic. Anyway, my brother, my father, myself were in, I believe it was Models. It was this uh, mall, not a mall, it's a shopping center, I shouldn't say mall, shopping center, that... Um, is on Easton Avenue. And if uh, if you know where the Somerset Diner is, and if you're standing in front of the Somerset Diner and you look across the street and to the left, there's a shopping center there that has a movie theater. And um, I believe it was the Models was there at the time. It's and, uh, a larger version of a strip mall, as I recall. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. If you look off, again, if you're standing in front of the, the Somerset Diner and you look off to the right, basically there are developments there now. But... In 1973, for the most part, that was undeveloped forest. There was nothing really there. There were some homes. For If you kept going on Easton Avenue away from New Brunswick, um, you'd find some homes down there eventually. But for the most part, that was largely undeveloped right there across the street from the Somerset Diner, looking right. If you were, again, staying in front of the Somerset Diner, looking across the street, looking towards Easton Avenue. That would be the case. You know, that was mostly undeveloped forest. Anyway, so we were coming out of the uh, the shopping center. My father was driving the car. I was sitting up front with him, and my brother was in the back seat. And um, so we're just coming out of the parking lot. I think it was JFK Boulevard or, or John F. Kennedy Boulevard, I think is the name of the, the road there on the side. And I don't have the presentation in front of me. It's actually on my other laptop that's at my girlfriend's house, so I don't have the presentation with me. Otherwise, I'd be walking through the street names. But I'll, I'll probably dump some stills up on the uh, on the forums so that people can get an idea of uh, some some of the, the context for this. Anyway, we're coming out of the shopping center, and um, we notice that there is a disc that is rising from the trees. And and when we noticed it, it was right above the tree line that seemed to be coming out of it was coming out of this forest. And it was a dark disc. It uh, it was hard to tell. At that moment, what the size of it was, we'll get to that in a moment. It was it was taking off, basically. It was coming up from above the trees. And what I specifically noticed was that beneath this disc, there were some some objects of some sort. There were what looked like kind of a box and these stalks. And I remember three or four of these stalks of different lengths were underneath of this disc, like attached to it, but coming down. I don't remember there being a dome on top or anything. It, it, I, I don't think there was. What we really noticed were these things hanging from below it, and of course the fact that there was a disc taking off from the forest. And we saw this, and uh, we got concerned. I mean, my father. I mean, we all saw this. My brother, my father, and I all saw this thing. You know, my brother. My brother was very young. I was like ten going on eleven. My brother was, uh, you know, seven going on eight. And here's my father with 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 me and my brother in the car, and mom's at home. 
And uh, so we see this thing coming up from above the trees, and my father takes the left turn onto JFK and just is driving. And we didn't stop to look at this. I, don't ask me why. I don't remember why. I think there was a level of concern at the time. But Dad took the left and is driving, and my brother and I are on, you know, the, obviously the passenger side. I'm on the passenger side of the car. My brother's right, sitting right behind me. And we're looking out the window at this thing, and as we're driving... This thing is pacing us, still flying above the trees. It's it's essentially following us. It wasn't directly behind us. That happened when we took a left turn about a, I want to say a half mile down the road to get to our house. You'd have to take a left. And we take this left, and now this thing comes across the trees, and now it's following us, very obviously following us and pacing us, keeping, keeping track with us. And my brother and I are getting, you know, sort of... Yes, excited is one word, a little freaked out is another word. My father is driving faster. I think my father was was really surprised. Was he trying to portray someone who had everything under control at this point? Yeah, pretty much, because I remember my brother was getting pretty agitated and I was kind of fascinated but and this is a this is a thing that, you know, you have to sort of specify or qualify here. People uh, like to think that if they're in a situation where they see a UFO, oh, I'm going to stop and I'm going to sit there and I'm going to look at it and I'm going to be totally calm and collected. And that's just not the way this stuff plays out. And it's hard to describe to people who, who envision this going down a certain way. But if you're in the middle of it, what, what you really realize when this happens is that these are profoundly frightening things. You know, when you, when you see something that you, you have never seen before, and and this was at a time we have to qual this is an important thing to qualify. At that time, this is nineteen seventy-three, the level of marketing penetration of the UFO meme was not at the level that it is today. Nowadays people look at the images of the Greys and you know, there's little dolls and there's little toys and this has all been marketed and people have been conditioned in a way where maybe now people would be a little more open about it and maybe less frightened of it. But 1973, this was certainly not the case. This was uh, this was weird stuff. I think it would be certainly weird today as well. But back then, again, there wasn't this level of marketing penetration of the imagery associated with UFOs. Which I think, if we get into that a little bit later in the show, may have polluted our observations very much so. I think that's not only very likely, but probably absolutely true. I, I think you, you've hit it right on the head with that one, Gene. Right. On a rare occasion, I do that, ladies and gentlemen. But yeah, I think that hurts our perceptions of things that are going on yeah. that we do not understand. So, okay, we've reached the point now, and we're going to recap a little bit because we're going to break for our hourly break in just a moment. You're near the Somerset Diner, and by the way, it's a great place to eat or used to be. And it's still really good. It's a mm -hmm. great place. It's a great place. I've eaten there recently with my girlfriend. It's really good. Oh, next time we're in New Jersey, we're going to go to the Somerset Diner. You know, they should buy advertising on this show. The Somerset Diner, where David Bietney had his famous sighting with his family. Oh, the with that next to where one of Edison's original lab laboratories used to be right there on Easton Avenue along that little river right there that there was one of Edison's laboratories when we moved to Jersey in the late 60s that building was still there they tore that down and I think there, maybe 1970 or so they tore that building down but one of Edison's laboratories was right there I always wonder if UFOs are often seen of course they're seen at power stations were you near a power station over there I don't recall mm, I don't think so okay no. No. all right that's one thing another thing would be a military base another thing thing would be, of course, 
a laboratory, large scientific installation. And we'll have more with David Vietney about an experience you have not heard before unless you were in Bordentown, New Jersey, a few weeks back and heard it coming up on part two of the PowerCast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the PowerCast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Part two, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney on the Paracast. We have two guests ourselves, but it's not an interview. We're just talking amongst ourselves. And David has begun to reveal something that happened to him in Somerset, New Jersey, back in the early 1970s, a few years after the Condon Report was issued. So maybe UFO interest was at a lower ebb, although I do recall a year or two later, there were some big sightings in Pennsylvania. So, okay, let's pick up on this, David. So we're driving along, and uh, my father is indeed trying to maintain some semblance of normalcy to whatever degree he could. My brother is having a bit of a meltdown in the back seat. Uh, he was excited, but not knowing what to make of it. And I can tell you that I was fascinated, but I was I was a little scared because this there's this realization now that this thing is following us. And it's a weird feeling, Gene. It's, again, it's very hard to convey. And as I'm telling the story, I'm sort of reliving it a little bit in my mind. And uh, don't worry, it gets a lot weirder. So we're, we're driving along. We're taking turns to get to my house. And for anybody interested in uh, specifics, uh, we had a house on 27 Patton Drive. You can look this up on the... Uh, on the internet, certainly on Google Earth. We were at 27 Patton Drive. Really nice little neighborhood, still is a nice neighborhood. Very, very squarely middle class, slightly upper middle class, but, you know, nothing pretentious. Anyway, so we're driving, and this thing, we're taking turns, multiple turns to get to the house, and this thing is taking the turns with us. It essentially was behind us, off to the side, and it wasn't very high up in the air, Gene. I'm going to guess it was maybe 400 feet up, maybe 300 feet up, and what I remember is these stalks underneath of it, because that's kind of what I could see. I could see the outline of the disc. It was a dark disc. It wasn't shiny metallic. It was darker. The, I couldn't tell if it was really shiny at all, even though it was dark. It seemed fairly matte. And, well, so this is the thing that's following us, and it's not going in front of us. It's kind of maintaining a certain distance. We take the turn onto Patton Drive, and we go up to the house, and my father would always park in the driveway outside. Across the street from us, there was a family called the Ferrises, and this plays into the story in a moment, because Mr. Ferris was out on the front lawn mowing his lawn. He had his little, you know, gas lawnmower going, and not the kind you sat in, it was the kind, you know, you actually, I don't want to say a manual lawnmower, but it was the kind, not the kind you, you drove by sitting on it, it was just one of those old, like, Toro-style, you know, uh, lawnmowers that you, you, you moved around with your hands, and it was gas-powered, obviously. So he was mowing the lawn, and we come up to the house, we pull into the driveway, and my father bolts out of the car and goes running in the house to get my mother leaving my brother in the back seat, who's now, as I remember, crying. My brother was, like, not happy about this, that Dad, like, bailed out of the car to go grab my mother. Now, how old was your brother at the time? Yeah, he was, like, seven or eight years old. Okay, and you were? I was just about 11. Okay. But I was a pretty old 11. I, I was always definitely old for my age, 
And um, I mean, at 11 years old, I was already a fairly tall person, and uh, I moved in usually much older circles. And that's a whole other separate story. But at, at 11, I was fairly aware of what was what was going on, and um, and pretty fairly grounded. I, I think. Who knows what what anybody else would say? But I get out of the car, and I move away from the car, walking, you know, kind of moving back towards the street because at this point the disc moves into position over our house and it is now hovering i want to tell you maybe 200 feet maybe 300 feet above our house and it's silent and it's hanging in the air right above our house and um i remember i'm looking at this and i don't know what to think at this point i i sort of was frozen in place i a part of me desperately wanted to run in the house and hide i remember that feeling very strongly but the other half of me was really fascinated by this because how often do you get to see something like this? And I'm looking up at it, and I hear a sound come from behind me. And what the what had happened was apparently Mr. Ferris turned, saw this thing hanging above our house, and he let go of his lawnmower, just like let it go. And it kept going, and it smacked into his car that was parked in his driveway. And I heard this lawnmower hitting the car. I turn around and I see Mr. Ferris looking up at this thing and his mouth is hanging open. Now, who knows if Mr. Ferris is still alive? I'm guessing the man is probably not alive anymore. He was uh, was older than my father, older than my parents. I'd be curious to know. I I don't think they had kids. I really honestly right now, I don't remember if they had kids they weren't my age because I wasn't friendly with them. You know, when you're a kid at that age, when you're like 10, 11 years old, you know, if you don't interact directly with people, they're not even on your radar, basically, so to speak. So, you know, essentially, I'd be curious to know if they're, if, if Mr. Ferris is still alive, if you ever heard this podcast, or if he had kids that heard him tell a story, because I'm sure that he told people about this, and we'll get to that in a moment. Anyway, he saw this thing. He lets go of his lawnmower, hits his car. He's like standing his lawn, staring up at this. So I turn back around, and, and it's still hovering above the house. And my father comes out with my mother, and my mother runs to the car to get Barry, but she's looking up at this thing, too. Again, you, you kind of couldn't help it. But she also heard Barry crying in the car, and she ran to grab him. And this is where things get really strange, because I'm looking up at this thing, and to my right and from behind me, all of a sudden, I hear this really loud sound, and it's a helicopter. This helicopter gene came out of, I guess, basically nowhere. This thing came screaming out of nowhere. It was a, it, I don't want to tell you it was a black helicopter. It was a dark helicopter with no markings. That much I can tell you. It was a dark color. I don't remember seeing any numbers or anything on this thing. This helicopter comes screaming out of nowhere at a very low altitude, and it's making a beeline right for this disc. It comes right for the disc. I turn around, and, and this is something that really needs to be mentioned. And uh, and I recently talked about this. Ritzman and I were talking about this with uh, Jeremy Viney on his uh, podcast. I didn't talk much about this episode, but what I talked about ties back into the O'Hare episode. You know, when, when the O'Hare episode happened last November... One of the things that people specifically commented on, the people who claim to be witnesses of this, was that the disc shot straight up and it shot straight up so fast it left a hole in the cloud cover. It's a perfect hole. And it shot straight up and there was no sonic boom. 
you have a, a UFO that is moving, or any object moves at a, at, a, at, a, at a really high speed, and it's displacing the air in front of it. And that displacement of the air in front of it contributes to a sonic boom. This very low frequency, very obvious sound that is a, you know, it's a, it's an extremely obvious sound. What happened is this helicopter goes right for the UFO, right for this disc. And I'm watching this happen right in front of me. I mean, it's just like within, I'm saying maybe what, 30 feet away from my house, maybe 40 feet away from the house. This is, the disc is maybe a few hundred feet, maybe two, 300 feet above the house. This helicopter comes rushing out of nowhere and it goes right for the disc. And Gene, that disc went from being fully stopped to full velocity with no acceleration. This thing shot straight up, Gene, and within maybe two seconds was completely gone. It made no sound doing it. And and again, this is a really relevant point. And, and this is where my brain, you know, when I think about this episode, this is the part that really stands out in my mind. This is the part that is as graphic as if it had happened yesterday. Because... To see an object hovering, stationary, and then not gain acceleration and then go fast, but to see it simply go from stopped to full speed is something that your brain has no visual reference for. In fact, your brain tells you something is dramatically wrong. It's not something you've ever seen. You know, you see a, a jet airliner take off and you see it gain speed. You watch, you know, imagine a car that was stopped and all of a sudden it goes from zero to 60 in zero seconds. Your brain has no reference for it. You still listening to me, Gene? Gene, you still there? <laughs> zero to 60 in zero seconds. And we have cars these days that can, people can afford that do it in five or six seconds. And you can imagine the rush accelerating that fast. Now, imagine I can just see this in some of the science fiction films we've seen, but certainly not in reality, this instantaneous acceleration, which is part and parcel of so many UFO cases. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. You've entered. 
entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the right. Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Return with us now to the 1970s near Somerset Diner over the home of David Bietney, age almost 11 years old, where he and his brother Barry and his dad saw this UFO, saw the helicopter, and now the UFO takes off into blast the skies, blasts the way, poof, straight up, and within two, maybe three seconds tops, it is completely gone. And now there's a helicopter hovering above our house. And in sharp contrast to the disc, the helicopter is very loud, real loud. As loud as it was, maybe, uh, I want to tell you, and I can't be ex exact about this, maybe 10 seconds goes by, maybe it was five seconds, and we hear a loudspeaker and it was really loud, Gene, because that helicopter was hanging right above the house, and that was loud as hell. All of a sudden, this voice comes out, go back in your home, as I remember it. It might have been slightly different from that, but, you know, go in your home, go back in your homes. And um, my mother grabs me, my mother's got my brother, and we all go in the house, and we are all highly traumatized. It's like, oh my God, what just happened? And we heard the helicopter hung around for another few minutes. We could hear it because it was right above the house. It, it moved around a little bit, and then we finally, after, I want to tell you, three or four minutes, it flew away, and, and it was gone, and we're just losing it. And I remember my father gets on the phone, and the first thing he does was to call the police. Call the police. What did he know? I mean, who lives through something like this? You don't know what to do. You call the cops. So you call the police, and what I remember happening was that the police kind of laughed him off the phone. They're like, oh, yeah, you saw what? Yes, sir, uh, maybe you should call someone else. Or my father, I remember my father getting off the phone very, very frustrated. He's like, they don't want to know. And he turned to my mother, Faye, they're, they're laughing at me. My mother said, well, call, it, call the newspaper. They'll want to know. So my father, as I remember, calls the local paper. We had, you know, like everybody else, we got the paper back then. Everybody used to get the paper. Right? This was a different time. That's and when uh, newspapers were actually being read by more than a few people. Today, of course, newspaper circulation is down the dust. But the newspaper was important. Even broadcast news, even broadcast news back in the 60s and 70s was always given second-class status. Okay? Sure. I mean, you know, people read the newspaper. That's what you did. There was no internet. There was none of this that we now take for granted. So my father calls the local paper and tries to talk to them about it, and they basically did pretty much the same thing, Gene. They sort of laughed him off the phone. You know, and I don't know. I have to believe someone else saw this thing. You know, this thing followed us for a good distance. It was flying over a fairly populated area. And also, obviously, somebody did something in terms of the, well, the helicopter. helicopter. Sure. Right? Like, how did that thing know that this thing was there? This is like one of the greatest parts of the mystery of it to me. Like, what was that helicopter? Was it really a helicopter? I mean, this is where things get, this is where the high weirdness factor comes in. I mean, was that helicopter a screen memory? I can't tell you. I mean, I don't think so. I remember the helicopter being really loud, being a very physical object. And and again, the important part was the, the sound and the level of sound of that helicopter 
versus the complete lack of sound of the disc. Very noticeable, sharp contrast. And then to see that disc move with the speed it did, Gene, I mean, I've, I've never, to this day, I've never seen anything else like that in my life. And that's why I, I have such a vivid memory of it, because it shatters all perceptions of what is normalcy. It, it's, it's just completely, there's no reference point for it. Anyway, so we're sitting there talking, and we were kind of flipped out. And all of a sudden, there's a knock on the door. And I remember that knock on the door. We all look at each other like, oh, God, you know, what the hell is that? My father went to the door, and he comes back, and it's Mr. Ferris from across the street. I remember he came in, and I hear him at the front door, Lou, what the hell is going on? Because he came over to us, and and, and uh, he wanted to know, what was that thing? And he hung out with us for a while, and then at some point his wife came over. But Mr. Ferris came over alone. And this was a crazy thing that went on, and we were talking in the kitchen, and my memory was that we were up fairly late that night talking about this. And um, there's another uh, completely, uh, well, not a separate element to this, but there's an important element to this, which is to mention that we had these next-door neighbors, the Kohlers. It was Betty, Jack, Teresa, and Steve Kohler. Teresa and Steve were the kids. Teresa was kind of like my surrogate sister growing up. A lot of stories about her. And Jack Kohler was a very high-up executive at the Associated Press. Now, there's a whole interest, a really interesting political story tied to this. And I'll just give the audience kind of a, a, a taste of this in that when Reagan took over the White House, when Reagan became president, Reagan's press secretary, this is my, and we found this out after we moved away to Venezuela, Jack and my father were good buddies. And I still have somewhere in my book collection a book on the Six-Day War in Israel that the Associated Press put out. And I guess Jack was deeply involved with it. And he, he uh, gave a copy to my father's hardcover book, and he signed it to my father. He inscribed it to my father. I still have that book in my collection. But Jack was tapped to go be the White House press secretary for the Reagan White House and, and went and took that job until apparently it was discovered. And this was something even my mother didn't know. Now, Jack was German. My mother was a German uh, national born in Berlin. And so her and Jack spoke German all the time to each other. And that was part of the, the friendship that we had with them. Uh, where they would practice German with each other. And what we found out years later, this is what happened. It's really crazy stuff. And I'll, I'll tie it back into this other story in a moment. So Jack goes to be the white, the press secretary for the White House. And he was in that job, I think it was a little over a year, until it was discovered. Somehow someone figured out or came out that Jack had been a member of the Hitler Youth growing up in Germany. And all of a sudden... He's gone from the White House. And in fact, Jack basically vanished. So he was gone. And the guy that took his place, Pat Buchanan, <laughs> well-known Republican political commentator. You know who Pat Buchanan is, right, Gene? Oh, of course. Everybody knows Pat Buchanan. So consider who he replaced. That's right. He replaced Jack Kohler, who, again, was this high-up guy at the Associated Press. And I bring up Jack Kohler because my father got in touch with Jack. I said, Jack, you know, this thing happened. Jack basically said to him, you don't want to pursue this, Lou. You don't want to do it. Because my father wanted to find out, like, why did the, you know, why did the police sort of joke him off the phone? They laughed him off the phone. Why did the, the newspaper not want to know about it? So I remember him talking to Jack Kohler about this. And Jack said, Lou, you don't even want to pursue this. Don't even, I don't really want to talk about it. You don't want to pursue it. There was this real deep discomfort on Jack's part to even dis discuss this with my father. He didn't want to talk about it, which I found to be very curious. Anyway, I, I'm dying to know 
if there was anybody else who lived in Somerset in 73, and this would have been, the time of year was, was summertime, because I remember that, you know, I, I remember we weren't wearing heavy clothes or anything. Um, it was fairly warm out, so this would have been summertime. I'm dying to know if anybody who lived in Somerset in 1973 in that general area, and so if you think about the Somerset Diner and you think about Patton Drive and how to get between those two places, anybody who lived in that area that would have been outside then would very likely have seen this. Gene, and I realized certainly right now there are listeners, I'm thinking of one in particular whose name is very close to Venom, who's listening to this going, oh, this psychotic jerk. What does he think? We're going to buy into his hallucination? To which I respond, listen, buddy, I was there. I don't know what the hell happened. I don't know what this was. I don't. And, and I'll, I'll go on record saying I have no explanation for this. I am just recounting an experience from my life. I don't proclaim to understand this even, and I don't. But I know what I saw. Uh, my, my brother was there. My brother's memories of this are a little, not I won't say a little different. They're certainly not as clear as his memories of the cigar ship in Caracas. He was younger. There was a traumatic element to it because, you know, basically my father like leaves him in the car, runs in to get my mother. I remember Barry crying in the back seat. So, I mean, you know, my brother, and I didn't tell him I was going to talk about this on air. He doesn't know that I'm doing this right now. He and I have talked about this episode, though, in recent years, especially after we talked about the Caracas thing. And, uh, and he said he had a memory of this, but it wasn't as clear as mine, which stands to reason. He was younger. It was a, a different level of perception going on. But this was my first really big UFO experience. And it was a doozy, man. It was a heavy one, and there are some elements of it that really, as I said, remained with me. The, the, the speed, the, the, the one really big call-out thing was the speed that this thing moved away with straight up and the fact that there was no sonic boom, the fact that there was no acceleration. And what I said on Jeremy's podcast when Jeff and I were talking to him and I brought this up, I didn't tell the story about the episode. I just talked about witnessing something moving really quick without a sonic boom is that if I had a guess, I would say that there were some clues that this episode gave me about what these things are to some extent in that if you're going to have a craft that's going to be able to move through air and not produce a sonic boom, what that suggests to me is A, this thing might have been changing the density of the air in the trajectory path in which it was going to move. B, that when this thing actually moved, it was less than a completely material object. That's one thing where it could conceivably be something that basically is materializing into our reality and then dematerializing it from our reality. And therefore, the laws of physics don't apply. So we think of all the things that should happen when something is doing this instantaneous kind of acceleration. What about the passengers inside? Yes, but if you're not traveling within our reality, if you're in some kind of dimensional warp as you move from one place to another, you're not infected by such things. You may sit in that craft and not notice the momentum. It's not like, you know, you go into your car and you do zero to 60 in five or six seconds. Man, you feel it. If you go up in the space shuttle and you're accelerating, you feel it. But if you're in that craft, sure, no G-force. That's what it appeared. And the fact that it wasn't moving the air in front of it and pushing the air in front of it to the degree where you'd hear that sonic boom, to me, suggests that maybe with some combination of changing the density of the air or the 
the material aspect of the air in front of it and its own material solidity or state. And and again, I'm not claiming that this is an absolute. I'm just saying there's a clue there. And and that was a clue, by the way, that that aspect of the O'Hare episode was not widely reported. But in doing the interview that Jeff did with the person called Witness, who on ATS confirmed that she had been a witness to this thing and provided some really interesting details that to Jeff and I suggested that she was really there. Whatever happened to this witness, by the way? We haven't heard much about uh, her since then. We haven't really heard much about her since because uh, what ended up happening was we were all hoping that more photographs would turn out from the O'Hare episode, and they haven't for any number of reasons, and we don't know why. Here it is, you know, more than a full year later, and nothing else has surfaced. Which is, on one level, it's very frustrating. On the other level, it's not completely shocking. And this ties into the fact that people, to a large degree, are uncomfortable around the subject. I've said some things on the show, and I've gone on record sharing some of my experiences that, at this point, I just do it without really stopping to think about the ramifications of these actions, Gene. I mean, maybe I'm really harming aspects of my career. That's entirely possible, and I have reason to believe it is. At the same time, I've lived through these things, and I feel compelled to talk about them. And I'm not exactly even sure why. I think for no other reason to get them off my chest. It it feels good to talk about this stuff. It's way cheaper than going to a therapist, as I've said on the show before. This is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer to the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net, and we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications, and you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos, and it's all for free. Or drop us a line, Mr. UFO at WebTV.net. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting too for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, you never know what's going to happen next.
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Not an interview this week. We're just talking. We're just shooting the breeze, talking about the things that have happened. More to David than myself. And sometimes I wonder if I shouldn't be jealous of all the people around me that I've encountered all through the years who have had all these extraordinary encounters. And, you know, I remember that crazy dream when I was a kid where this black thing came to me in a nightmare over a period of several years. That was it, I think. And then, of course, mm-hmm. the one instance with my first wife, Geneva, and- where we had the water elemental. Otherwise, someone once said I'm the focal point or some kind of person who maybe I'm the garbage collector. I don't know. But I am surrounded by people who have had strange things happening to them. It doesn't happen to me, but I think it has to be pointed out that some people say we welcome the Space Brothers. We welcome these experiences. We don't mind if somebody picks us up out of our bed, levitates us, sends us through the walls into a spaceship. We don't care about that. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that most of us would be frightened to death. David would be frightened to death if that happened to him. Absolutely. I think being frightened is the only healthy response. I think if you're not frightened of this of this stuff, quite frankly, something's wrong with you. I really believe that, Gene. And, you know, I don't often say I believe something, but I do believe that. I think that if people, you know, want to go into the field with their arms open and bring these things down, I, I think at that point it's a kid playing with matches. We don't know what we're dealing with here. We really don't. And this is something that, in trying to have a show that is taking a median approach to this discussion, this is something that we pay a price for, in that I know certainly I could cite a number of situations where we've made enemies on on both sides, the uber-skeptics or the, the debunkers who don't believe in any of this stuff, who basically think that all of this is one big consensual hallucination or mental masturbation, you have them on one side who will listen to my description of a situation and go, well, that's just patent nonsense. You know, and, and to them, a craft could land in front of them, and an alien can come out and spit in their eye, and they'll say, oh, well, gee, uh, that didn't really happen. I'm just hallucinating that. I guess that's, I, I took too much Ambien last night, and it's still having an effect on me. You have those people on one side, and on the other side, you have you know, the, the folks from that local MUFON group that start their monthly meeting with a prayer session to the Space Brothers. You've got, like everything else in our society, everything is polarized. So we have these two completely polarized opposing points of view and very little in the middle. Well, the thing I always wonder here is, do you really want somebody to remove you from the sanctity of your home and do all sorts of strange things. Do you really crave that kind of experience? Is that really salvation for you? That the salvation. Space Brothers are going to save your butt because they're going to kidnap you? I mean, is kidnapping the right thing to do? I mean, we'll kidnap an animal, and that's okay because we regard them as animals. But the Space Brothers kidnapping people, that's okay? No, I think what's really going on here, Gene, is that in our mass in our mass-marketed, consumer, materialistic society, what people are desperate for, what they're hungry for, is a mystical experience. I mean, why else is religion still so popular? People, the human mind and the human spirit seems to have a need, a real definitive material need for mystical experience, for the idea that we don't understand everything. And I think that People are so desperate for this experience that 
they don't know what they're dealing with here, but they want to have it so that they can feel like they're part of the group of people who have had this experience, so they can feel like they've touched the face of the unknown. I think I think it's just a, a, a sort of a core human motivation, a spiritual motivation that this type of phenomenon provides. That if you see a UFO, now all of a sudden you can believe in something bigger than you. And, and, and it serves the purpose for them that other people go to church for, or go to synagogue for, or go to a mosque for. You know, I think, I think that's really what's going on here, Gene. And, and ultimately, this says, I think, a lot about the, I don't want to call it moral bankruptcy, but the emptiness of so much of our society at this point that you've got people that are gorging themselves on TV and corn syrup and drugs and stimulants and way too much caffeine and, and antidepressants and all this other junk. I mean, you know, or cocaine or, or, or alcohol. Take your pick. All of these things that either are designed to deaden the pain of existence and reality or to enhance it and to take it to an extreme. I think people are dying for this sense of life. And I, and I know I'm probably not describing this well. It's hard, it's, it's hard because the terminology for this is not immediately at hand. It's not real obvious. But I think that people have this hole in their souls that they find the materialism doesn't satisfy, you know, television doesn't satisfy, and they turn to these mystical realms, and this is what they want to they wanna feed off of this. I had this woman I knew who uh, was a close friend of mine, and uh, I had shared some of these stories with her very privately, and, and she said to me, boy, I'd love to be out in the woods, and I'd love to see one of these things land. And I said to her, do you really think you'd want that? Do you, do you, and she said to me, well, You've had all these experiences, and I hadn't told her about half of the stuff at that point. I told her about a few things, and she said, well, you've had all this stuff. Why would you begrudge me this experience? It's not that I begrudge you anything, just that beware of, you know, the old saying is beware of what you want. You may get it. All right. Well, that's unfortunate because I don't know that I wish this to happen to me. I really don't want somebody to come to my home in the middle of the night and float into the window and take me captive. I don't think it's my idea of a pleasurable evening. Well, I would agree with you, but how many people listening to the show right now want exactly that? How many people have posted stuff on AboveTopSecret.com saying, gee, I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have those experiences. People do want them. And that's the reality of the situation. And then what happens is that if you're someone like myself who's had a number of these experiences, and now you're out there talking about them, what you get from some people is jealousy. It's like the weirdest thing, I, and, and I've got. Yeah, but how can you be jealous of this kind of thing, of a frightening experience, something that frightens you, scares you to death? I can't imagine that I'm jealous of David. I am not jealous, ladies and gentlemen, of David. But people, people don't think it's going to frighten them to death. They think that they're going to be there, and the craft is going to land, and the creature is going to come out and offer them the token of peace. And people want to be part of this. Everybody wants to belong, Gene. This is, again, it seems to be basic human motivation. Everybody wants to be part of a group. Everybody wants to identify with other people who are like-minded. And I think that this is almost like a rite of passage. People want to have paranormal experience because then there is a thrill to that. Look, Gene, people jump out of airplanes 
I have yet to understand that one. I'm going to strap on a parachute, and I'm going to jump out of an airplane because it's going to give me a sense of being alive. Because there's this idea that if you touch the face of death, it's going to make you more alive. There was a movie some years ago called Flatliners. I don't know if you ever saw it. It had Julia oh. Roberts in it and Kiefer Sutherland and a few other people. And the plot is, of course, that these people, these are medical students who take themselves to the point of near death. Mm -hmm. Their heart stops beating. And they let it sit that way for a minute or so, and they bring it back to life. I think somewhere towards the end, somebody doesn't survive. But this is the great high. They're brought to the brink of death and beyond, and now they can tell people what it was like in the afterlife? I don't know. I don't think that's something I really want to do for excitement. You're not Christopher Walken in Brainstorm. I think that's a better example where he's got the, you know, Louise, uh, no, what's her name? The name of the actress who dies and records the experience of her death on the brainstorm machine and Christopher Walken, you know, the rest of the movie is about Christopher Walken trying to get a hold of those tapes so he can play them back because it's all about supposedly, right, I mean, this device that he's co-invented with Louise. Oh, what's the name of the actress that plays the nurse in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Louise oh, Fletcher, you know what, I got it right here in front of me. Here's the listing for the film, and I can tell you yeah. who everybody is now. Okay, so Christopher Walken plays Dr. Michael Anthony Brace, Natalie Wood, and Louise Fletcher, Louise Cliff Fletcher. Robertson, and et cetera, et cetera. That was Natalie Wood's very last movie, Brainstorm. By the way, for those in the audience who have never seen this movie, it is, I think, the best movie ever made about virtual reality and some of the implications of it. This This movie... And it wasn't the world's best movie ever, but there are some aspects of this movie that are absolutely fascinating. It's a great movie that's kind of been lost in time, and um, it's one of these things that when people get interested in like virtual reality, they discover this movie, they watch it, and they're like, why haven't I ever heard about this before? And, and basically, Louise Fletcher and Christopher Walken are the two scientists that developed this device that records experiences seen through the eyes and senses of whoever's got the recording device on. Then that experience can be played back and other people can immerse themselves in the experience. A really excellent, excellent sort of a, an underlying idea for this movie. And what ends up happening is that Louise Fletcher, essentially, she's not well. She freaks out. She uh, has, I think it was a stroke or a heart attack. She dies. But before she dies, she straps on the recording thing and it records her death, her passing. And so I could spend a whole episode talking about Brainstorm. It really deals with a lot of fascinating topics about this. But essentially, even though Christopher Walken thinks that there's a chance he might not survive experiencing what she experienced, he straps this thing on. He tries, again, rest of the movie is about after she dies, it's about him trying to get access to this tape because uh, Robertson represents, he's kind of like the main guy at the laboratory and there are the military guys that want to exploit this for the military advantages, a.k.a., ooh, a great torture machine. Anyway, bottom line is that at the end of the movie, what happens is that Walken essentially is able to experience her death and what comes afterwards because, you know, that is the great goal. It's the greatest mystery of, of humanity. What happens after we die? It's certainly... Uh, <laughs> 
It has certainly been the subject of many best-selling books and movies, if nothing else. So, yeah, everybody wants to know this. We all want to know what lies beyond this planet. Sure, but I would like to know it in an academic way. I don't want to experience it in person unless I knew 100% I could come back. In a case like this, you're taking this kind of risk. But, of course, if it happens in fiction, that's fine. Right, but that's just you. How many people are climbing a mountain today? How many people are jumping out of an airplane to have that extreme experience, Gene? I mean, they don't think, though, they're going to die. I mean, when you climb a mountain, you think you're going to get to the summit of the mountain. You're going to get down safely. You're going to get your 15 minutes of fame. Sure. But no matter what you think, in the end, life is a zero-sum game. We're all going to die. And, of course, we spend a lifetime in denial about that. How much healthier would our society be if we dealt with death as the most natural part of life besides birth. Well, some societies do that. Not ours. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're pretty far from it, Gene. Uh, which course. is sad because this is the, and, and I got to tell you, in my life, I have been present now in a room when more than one person has died. My, my cousin's wife, who had this terrible battle of cancer, I was holding her when she took her last breath. Now, someone would hear that and go, well, that's just sad and terrible. And I would say that it was certainly extremely sad, but at the same time, there was something very intense. Really, I don't want to use the word beautiful, but there was something definitely very spiritual about holding someone as they leave. I can't really explain the sensation. I've been very close to her, and, and we had done some thinking and some growing together, she and I. That's a whole other story that I will not share with our audience now or probably ever because it's a, it's an aspect of me and in my past that uh, I, I am not comfortable discussing publicly. And, and again, based on what I've seen people go through as they reveal experiences in their life and who they are, if I ever really want to go over the edge, I'd start talking about some of this stuff. And, and, it, and it definitely qualifies as paranormal, but... Again, it's outside of my realm of comfort in, in terms of public disclosure. But, you know, holding Linda as she left, she left. It was, I have to say, I was, almost, I was honored. Interesting thing. Sure. My wife was almost in the same position. Her mother died in her arms. And I'll tell you about that in a moment. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. That's one small step to Armageddon. 2019, the moon. A Soviet spacecraft found after half a century holds the darkest secret of the moon race and the hope of all humanity. Paul Levinson, the award-winning author of The Silk Code, writes, The novel Red Moon is a masterpiece, an adventure that you'll never forget. By David S. Michaels and Daniel Brenton. 
Available now at Amazon.com. Find out more at Luna15.com. That's L-U-N-A-1-5. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. During the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany spending two hours talking, just talking, about mm-hmm. things related to the paranormal and elsewhere. And this goes back to 1985 when my mother-in-law had some kind of seizure, like a heart attack. My wife held her, and a few minutes later, she felt this great pressure inside her gut. And I then learned from the emergency workers who came over. We dialed 911. Someone's being stricken. They arrived a couple of minutes later. They told me, and my wife didn't know this at the time. She felt the sensation. They told me at that particular point in time, they counted her dead in the truck, in the ambulance. She was dead at that particular point in time. And this is not unusual. When people die, other people sense it. Hmm. It's weird, isn't it? Uh, there's a story I'll tell some other time about my father and his twin sister, and that when uh, when my father passed away, my aunt, who never believed in any paranormal stuff at all, as grounded and as pragmatic a person as you'd ever want to meet, she claims that when my father passed, that she knew the moment it happened because she says that he appeared to her and said he was leaving. And, uh, and she didn't know what to make of this. They were twins. And so they had that unique bond, but she swears that this happened, that she, she saw him right in front of her and he said, uh, I'm leaving. I don't want to, I don't want to mention specific, her specific name. I have a reason for not wanting to mention that. I don't know if she'd be comfortable with me revealing this, but she, she says that he appeared in front of her as a fully sort of a fully materialized version of himself. And he said that actually, my father had, had passed away slowly from, from a cancer. It sort of ate him alive. So by the time he passed away, he had he was a bag of bones. It was a very sad, very, very sad thing. This is not unusual, by the way. Especially twins seem to have an unusual yeah. rapport that is beyond the brother-sister, brother-brother-sister-sister kind of relationship. Yeah. So, you know, what do all these things mean? And this is what the Paracast is here for, Gene, for us to talk about. What did these things mean? Is it even possible for us to understand this stuff? I, I, I don't know. I, I question whether or not we are ever going to have answers to these things. This comes back to people wanting disclosure, you know, this whole thing about the disclosure movement, that there are elements in the government that know what's going on, for example, with UFOs, and that they're going to disclose it at some point if we press them for it. Which, Well, that's a comfort point, too. You don't want the government to say, hey, we, we don't know. You'd rather have the government know the answers and be protecting you for whatever reason because in this hope for disclosure. You'd rather have the government be in touch with the aliens because, again, there's that comfort level. But if they said, you know what, we have no idea. Collectively, as a species, we seem to think we know a lot more than we do. And this is part of our, you know, our petulant aspect as a bunch of overgrown children. I mean, we think that we are masters of the universe. And uh, I think it would really behoove us as a species to get one big, huge dose 
of uh, of humble pie, because I think as we as we move in through our history here, what becomes clear to me at least, and and, and this is interesting because I've been accused on this show of being arrogant in that I think I know it all. And if there's one message that I feel is the most important message of the Paracast gene, it's that we know very little, and that includes me at the very top of that list. I don't think I have much of a handle on anything in terms of understanding the nature of reality. And I think the first most important step in gaining any understanding is to admit how little we know. We don't know much about anything, really. We, 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 and we think we do. We really think we do. And, and we look at, like, you look at computers. And you and I have two careers that are wrapped around technology. And we look at what the computer is. And the computer is an amazing thing. But really, at a core level, what the computer is is an amazingly stupid machine that does a lot of stupid things really quick. I shouldn't say stupid. A lot of simple things. If you look at a computer as at a computer as a binary based symbolic manipulation device, which is what it is, and you study computer design, what you find out is that this is all about serial speed, the speed at which you can do individual things very quickly. And that is something that the computer is really good at. But when you try to move into something that more models what for example we are, which is more of a highly parallelistic processing entity, what you realize is that essentially the smartest computer on the earth has the intuition of, I don't know, a drunk ferret. <laughs> but you notice, don't you notice though, and this really doesn't relate to artificial intelligence, or maybe it will, now suddenly we're into parallel processing very deeply. Now the cheapest, the very cheapest personal computers have dual processors, and there is some level of parallel processing going on, but mostly it's just the same thing, each one doing serial tasks. What you said is true. At this point now, we've hit the limits on what we can we can do with the size of the die in manufacturing uh, transistor components. So essentially now we have dual core processors, and, and what we're doing, you know, well, two, gee, two, two is better than one, so if we have two things stuck on one chip and that chip must be twice the size of the original chip, well, okay, so now we have two processors, but... Let's look at the software side of that. Is the software designed at a level where it's really smart about prioritizing tasks and doing parallel processing in a way that is efficient and intelligent? And I don't think, I don't think that's the case at all. I think in many ways software design is stuck in the same hole that it was stuck in 15 years ago. And, and this is, of course, the big challenge in computing is how do we make proper use of the amount of processing power in the box, given that most of the time your box is sitting there doing zip? It's doing nothing. So you have this huge amount of processing power, and it's essentially untapped. The operating system doesn't know much about it. The operating system is as dumb as it ever was. Maybe, again, this is a, a topic for the Tech Night Owl, but this is something I've been thinking a lot about lately in terms of software design. And I think that in many ways this parallels what we see in the real world about the evolution of humanity. I think, I think we've really gotten stuck. We've gotten stuck in a way where our technology has outpaced our, I don't want to say intellectual ability, but it's something 
it's our spiritual it's, ability. Well, I, you know what? When you when you use the term spiritual, that brings a bunch of baggage with it. It does carry a lot, but I always think back every time you mention that. I say, why are some of these things here? Why are flying saucers here? Because Ray Palmer once said, to make us think. Think about what? Well, he implied this imbalance, an imbalance that we've basically lost our souls in our quest for greater riches, greater technology, and maybe there is a balance of our personalities that needs to regain itself. And the presence of UFOs reminds us of that. That's certainly possible. Though I'm finding that I'm becoming a big fan of Mac Tony's. I think that this book that Mac is writing about his expansion of the idea of the crypto-terrestrial theory, I think Mac is on to something there. And not to explain all UFO encounters, certainly, but a good number of them. And maybe what Mac is doing is actually pointing us towards the new way of thinking that might deliver the actual useful understanding of what this is about. It's high time, David, we get Mac Tony's back on here with Jeff Ritzman and the rest of the crew and yeah. talk shop. Absolutely. I think that Mac is going to end up being one of the guys that's really, he, he's, in my opinion, he's positioned to be the next Jacques Vallée. I think that the stuff that he's thinking about, and certainly that new book, little pieces he's put up on his website, on the post-human blues, have shown me that, well, not only is he a fantastic writer, he's a really, I, I wish I wrote half as well as that guy does. Uh, I don't. And, and I'll admit that right up front. But I think that ultimately that line of thinking is going to not only get us further, but I think that that line of thinking is ultimately going to be the answer. Or it's going to, the answer is in there somewhere versus let's look out into space and let's figure out what star system they come from. I think that what we're looking at is something far more complex, in many ways far more subtle. And I think that when you say that UFOs are, are here to make us think, that you know this was something that that has been thrown out into the into the ring for discussion in the past. I think it's something more involved. It's a more involved version of that. Um, I think that. Ultimately, humans play a role in this whole situation that we don't fully understand. And I've said this on the show before, Gene. If we ever get to a deeper understanding, certainly of the UFO phenomenon, it's going to be something far stranger than any of us ever guessed. And, and maybe we won't see that. Look, maybe this is all an exercise in futility. And we maybe we don't have the intellectual ability to comprehend this stuff. Or maybe That's the whole thing is the search. The search is everything, and there is no end, because every time you think you've reached the end, you find more things you have to consider. You expand in one way or the other, your consciousness, your technology, whatever, and then there's another mystery. That sounds plausible to me. And in talking about this with my lovely girlfriend, Susan, that's the direction she's pushing me in as well. Because she's one of our biggest fans, certainly, and, and she takes the show very seriously. And she listens to it very carefully. It's kind of funny whenever I, if I call her up and she says, I'm listening to the show right now, my standard line is, oh, sorry to hear that. <laughs> you know, I, I, what I, you know. Someday she has to come on the show. I said that to her um, because, you know, she has a tremendous amount of knowledge about medieval studies. And she's, when we had on that Arachnaya, whatever that woman's name was, um, I can never get the pronunciation of it right in my mind unless I listen to it at the This is the woman, by the way, who said Christ doesn't exist. Right. 
Susan Arcaria X or Arcaria S or something like that. Yeah. Who had, I forget. There was someone had recommended. Oh, I think it was my friend Mike Miley who recommended we speak to her. But I know that when she listened to episodes, Susan had a whole, she was like writing down a whole list of issues that she felt were inaccurate. And she's someone who knows something about the interpretation of the Bible. So, yeah, I, I've asked her to come on the show, but she's like, what would I talk about? What do you mean? I don't want to come on the show. So uh, I, don't, I don't know that she's really uh, exactly open to it. It's kind of funny, though. There were, uh, there were a couple of moments in that Bordentown thing. There was this one guy, and, and I don't remember his name right now, and it's good because I don't want to give him any PR. We got into this whole big discussion. He was up there promoting these books he's written, these terrible books. Oh, my God, they're so bad. And he gave me a couple of them, and they're somewhere. I don't want to go look for them. They're just, like, terrible. And, you know, the whole ancient astronauts thing, but uh, that's what that's his, his shtick. But the guy, I know we're at the end of the episode here, so I don't have time to get into all of this stuff. But uh, Susan, during the Q&A, Susan asked him a question about, oh, you're a researcher. What, are your, what is your exact, exact research methodology? You know, how, what, do you, what is your definition of research? What's your method? What are the techniques you use? And he, like, looked at her, and it was just funny to watch him wither because he had no real answer for her. And, and this is a guy who grew up in some repressive uh, fundamentalist household, and now his whole adult life was basically a response to that. And he was trying to push me to invite him on our show. And at one point he was talking to Susan and he said to her, yeah, you know, I want to go on the Paracast because then uh, I can have lots of visibility and I can be rich and, and, and successful. And, and Susan told me this and I was laughing, thinking he thinks he's going to come on the Paracast and get rich. He really is delusional. <laughs> it was just, it was so funny. And, um, you know, these books were just, oh my God, they're just, just terrible. The guy just made no sense whatsoever. And this, unfortunately, uh, you know, this is what ends up happening in this field where anybody who's got an opinion gets up, makes a proclamation, and, and there you have it. And, and if it, they baffle you with the proverbial BS in the right. proper fashion, yeah. people believe it, they get followers. And those followers follow them to the ends of the earth. But sometimes they also get involved in cults where they say, you know what, if you kill yourself, the space people will resurrect you and take you aboard a spaceship. So sometimes those things can be dangerous. It's not so bad if, okay, the worst you did was spend $50 on a book or $25 on a book or attended a ridiculous lecture or went on a ridiculous retreat for $800 where you supposedly will learn how to attract UFOs to your home as if you want to attract UFOs to your home. Do you really want to do that? Whether no, it's $800 I'm, or $8,000, is that what you really want? To which I would respond, if they can take me you know, 20 years into the future so I can see where Photoshop ends up and come back and uh, go get a consulting gig at Adobe to take them in the direction of where Photoshop will head and then take credit for ultimately fulfilling the prophecy of where Photoshop went, yeah, if they can do that, sure, that'd be a good gig. What but, about uh, the stock market, knowing where the stock market's going to be tomorrow? Well, gee, I don't know. It might be an alternate universe where things work out different, like Dr. Schmucky said. Yeah. Oh, yes. We don't uh, want to yes, one, of our, one of our better guests, eh? Interesting how we haven't gotten any email from him. He kind of went away. Faded Thank, out. Thank goodness for that, because, man, that... You know, and, and, and I guess we can kind of start to wrap this episode up by... By hoping, first of all, that anybody who's listened to this hasn't gotten completely bored listening to us yak away for two hours. There's that. And 
for just maybe getting a bit more of an insight in, into why we're doing this and and what we're getting out of it. I think that I know certainly based on the emails that I get and what people post on the forums, you know, sometimes I think there's some misinterpretation. At the same time, I know I can certainly be arrogant and, uh, you know, you're kind of a nice little puppy dog. <laughs> I want and a dog bone. Where's my dog bone? Okay, well, I can't rein you in. You're 2,000 miles away. You know, people think that we are sitting, and we're just about to wrap it up, ladies and gentlemen, but people think that we sit in the same room, stare at each other, and we point fingers at each other who goes next, and you're 2,000 miles away from me. Is it a whole 2,000 miles? It feels so much closer. Well, it feels it's, like it's, it's about that, right? Yeah, it's a little over 2000 miles away. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know whether demographics makes any sense to you, whether you even care about the subject. But we kind of care because the people who want to sponsor the Paracast care about the people who are listening to the show. So what we've done is we've set up a listener survey at the com. That's a listener survey. And guess what it's called? Listener survey. Start now. It's on our homepage at the Paracast. If you fill in the information, answer the questions, and we're not going to grab your personal information. We just want some basics about who you are so we can tell our sponsors who's listening to the show. So please help us at thepowercast.com. And we're going to have more excitement and some special guests coming up next week on The Powercast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.